continuing our study here through the book of Acts. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do the first 19 verses here this morning. And it's really going to continue a theme that we started last week. And last week was this idea of how is the church supposed to work? I thought Heather had a great, great quote there when she was talking about that uh, you know, missionary update about disciples. That's one of the themes that we really hit last week. One of the phrases in last week's message, if you weren't with us, is this idea of the 21st century church is broken. If we really want church to be done the way the Bible says, we need to look at how they did it in the book of Acts. This idea of discipleship making and getting involved in people's lives and in seeing what the Lord is doing and encouraging them as they bless us. And it takes us out of this idea that we have, because really right now the concept of church we have is this. We show up on Sunday, there's this one guy that's called the pastor, he gets up, he teaches, and then we go home. And it's not that we go home and we don't live for Christ, I don't want to make it sound that way, but we go home and just assume, for the most part, that the pastor or the staff is just going to take care of the church and I'll see you again in seven days. That's not the way the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be involved in people's lives, encouraging, uplifting, making disciples, being a disciple. And this is a theme that we want to continue. So often out here at church, we'll have a message like that, and then we'll move on to the next topic as we continue our study through a book. We don't want to do that, because in the book of Acts, you see this topic just keep developing and developing and growing. And we want to be a church that cares. And I tell you, I heard this great quote this week, and I want to share this. It says, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you love the church? As you look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you think to yourself, I love these people so much, I pray God empowers me in some way to encourage these people toward a deeper walk with Him. And that's the goal, is to make disciples, to be disciples, and see the world change for Jesus Christ. Now with that being said, today, Saul gets saved. Now, this is fascinating. Now, we were first introduced to Saul a couple of chapters ago. At the end of chapter 7, we see Saul consenting to the death of Stephen, meaning he was okaying that and wanting it. We see Saul in Acts chapter 8, the Bible says, wreaking havoc on the church. And then here at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, look at verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them to bound to Jerusalem. Breathing threats and murders against the church. Every time I teach on Saul getting saved, I always use this point. Think of that one person, the worst person you know, that you could probably think they will never get saved. That's the Saul in your life. They can get saved. We have some Sauls here this morning that people thought at one time that you would never be walking with the Lord and you're walking with the Lord. That's what God does. Now, I will use the name Saul and Paul interchangeable here. In a couple chapters, Saul gets a name change. And we'll talk about why that happens in a little bit. But Saul means desired. God desired a relationship with Saul. Paul means small or little. So when Saul got saved, he became small or little, humbled by what the Lord had done. It's a neat picture there. I don't know if we can do this justice. I don't know if we can fully understand Saul getting saved. This is the guy that oversaw the death of Stephen. This is the guy that in chapter 8 was wreaking havoc in the church. This is the guy in chapter 9 that was threats and murder against the church. You know, I, I can't think of an equivalent. The best I can think of is, can you imagine four or five years ago, if you would have suddenly read the headline that Osama bin Laden denounced his Muslim faith and accepted Christ? Oh, that can never happen. 
What happened if, you know, 15 years ago, all of a sudden, did you hear about Saddam Hussein? He's no longer a Muslim. He accepted Christ. No. See, we, that can't happen, can it? I mean, there's no way. There's no way that Osama bin Laden could have got saved. Saddam, there's no way. Saul did. Saul got saved. And, and I think we just kind of look over this point way too much. Don't ever forget the grace of God and what it did in Saul's life. I mean, because looking at Saul... This is the guy, I wonder what the prayer services for the early church were like. Were there prayer services of people hitting their knees, saying, my heart breaks for Saul, bring him to Jesus? Or was it, Lord, remove Saul, take Saul out. He's a threat to the church. I don't know. But Saul gets saved. Now, the church has a hard time with this, because this week and even next week, more importantly, the church has a hard time accepting that Saul's now walking with the Lord. But he gets saved. Now, real quick side point here before we move on. Look at verse 2. If he found any who were of the way, that's a term that's used throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And that's reference to Jesus who said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is only one way to get to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through Christ on the cross. So when it refers to the way... It's referring to that reference that it has to be Jesus. So what happens, verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He saw the light, no pun intended. He saw the light, verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there's a lot of amazing points that come out of this. He saw the light, verse 3. Verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is a great passage. Because... When we hurt, Jesus hurts. When somebody affects us and hurts us, it hurts Christ. We are the body of Christ. Now, what happens is this. You go through a tough time, be it spiritually, emotionally, physically. No one fully understands that pain other than you. I mean, you can try to articulate it to other people. You can try to explain it. We may sit here. We may agree. We may pray with you. But we never know fully what you are going through. This usually leads to some type of frustration. I've seen people do that. They're frustrated that they go up to somebody, they open up their life to them, they open up their heart, and, and the person says, I know, I understand. No, you don't know, you don't understand. Or, or, or maybe, I know, I, I get it. We don't get it. We don't. There's only one person who truly gets it, and that's Christ. And I'm not saying don't go to the body. We're as a body, we are supposed to care and share and be there with you. But ultimately what it comes down to is there's only one person that truly understands, be it the physical, emotional, or spiritual pain and suffering that you're going through, and that's Christ. There's a great verse in Proverbs. You don't need to turn there, but just write it down if you're taking notes. Proverbs 14, verse 10. Proverbs 14, verse 10. It says, The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. The heart knows its own bitterness. There's only one person that understands the bitterness and pain you have in your heart, and that's Christ. 
You can try to explain it to us. We can try to be there. We can lay hands on you. We can pray with you. I can give you verses. I've had people come up to me over the years and say, I went to this friend, this family member. I tried talking to them, and they didn't get it. And sometimes I've heard people say they came up to me and talked to me, and I didn't get it. We try, but the heart knows its own bitterness. I mean, some of us come in, and we put a little facade on. There's bitterness, angry, anger, there's loneliness, there's hurt, but we don't open up. Christ knows. And what about the second part of that? And a stranger does not share its joy. What about the flip side? Maybe someone didn't understand the pain you were going through, so that hurt, and you thought you were all alone. But what happens when something amazing happened to your life? So you went up to your brothers and sisters in the Lord, and you shared that joy with them, and their response was less than excited. That almost hurts as much. When something amazing happens into your life, and then you don't have that person to show excitement with, that hurts. Christ knows your excitement. Christ knows your joy. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? One of the verses that we really try to push at home with the boys is out of Romans where it says, Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Once again, as a body of Christ, we need to get involved in each other's lives and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We really try to encourage the boys with this at home. And they do a good job on the weep with those who weep. If any one of the boys get hurt, it, they are, the one that's hurt is like inundated with things. The boys would just go grab something for them. Maybe it's their blanket. Or they'll go grab them a popsicle or something. And it's like this bringing gifts to the altar thing. This kid's on the couch hurt. And everybody's just laying something down at their feet. They weep with those who weep. They don't do a good job with rejoice with those who rejoice. This is what happens with rejoice with those who rejoice at our house. Somebody's maybe playing a game. And they've completed a level. They did something really good. Or they'll say, hey guys, look what I did. This is what I hear. Great. Good job. Well done. About that tone of voice. Hey, did you see what I built? Great. That's nice. Well done. Good job. You know how hard it is to rejoice with somebody who rejoices? Because maybe you don't share that same passion, that same excitement. So I get on the boys about that. And then I heard one time in the house, one of the boys came up and they were excited about something simple that they did. And guess what I heard my voice saying? Great. Well done. Good job. We got to be careful. As a body of Christ, prayer requests come through the prayer line. I don't know who this person is. Okay, so I, I, I see they lost a loved one. I, I see they're in the hospital. Well, you know what? They're my brother and sister in Christ. I want to pray for them. Maybe a praise comes through the prayer line. Praise that so-and-so's test results came back good. I don't even know who that is. I will still rejoice with those who rejoice we got to be careful that we don't become these isolated pockets in the body of Christ. We are one. And what we're going to see here last week, this week, in this ongoing theme, is that this idea of church needs to change. Because if we just start thinking, well, it's the responsibility of the staff, of the pastors, to know that so-and-so is hurting, and to know that that person's rejoicing. It's not my responsibility. No, it is. We are one. We weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, we don't get into numbers out here. I've shared that with you before, but we figured up, somebody figured up last fall, there's, there's over 500 people that claim this as their church. Now, some of those we wish didn't claim us, but they still do, so we've got to take care of them. We need to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We can't take care of all that. This is where the body, God has designed the system for the church to take care of the church. 
That's the system. And we mentioned last week, I'm going to repeat a couple of these points. It would be great if you would take a copy of the directory home and look through it. Break it down through seven different days. Pray for people. And as you look through that directory and you see people you don't know, meet them. Introduce yourself to them. Become a body. we got to get past this point of we show up on Sunday, we do our worship, we do our time of service. Hey, that Bible study sounds fun. Hey, that sounds encouraging. We need to do that. That's all important. But then throughout the week, we need to be disciples and also making disciples. That's the purpose of the church. I'm going to share this quote with you. A friend of mine once said that Christians are like manure. Spread them out and they help everything grow better. Keep them in one big pile and they stink horribly. Sometimes that's the truth. We get in our isolated little groups and we have church. And then we leave and we come back in seven days. And it's not that we're going out and living immorally throughout the week. The purpose of church, according to Ephesians, is my role as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We come together to be refreshed, be encouraged, give you small group study opportunities, an opportunity to serve, an opportunity to worship and pray. We give you those opportunities and then send you out, hopefully, built up and say, now go make disciples for seven days. And what you see here in the church, that's the goal. Because verse 4, Jesus hurts when we're persecuted. I want to be like Christ. I want to hurt when you hurt. I want to rejoice when you rejoice. And we want to be a team, a body of Christ, as we do that. Let's continue on here in Acts 9. So, we will fail you when it comes to your dark times in life. We will fail you when it comes to your exciting times in life. It's not that we don't want to. It's not that we don't mean to, I should say. But Christ always will weep with you. Christ will always rejoice with you. So what happens here, verse 5, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, depending on your translations, NIV, New Living Translation, probably you don't have the rest of verses 5 and 6. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's a translation issue, and we can obviously talk about that uh, later on, -on one-on-one, if you're interested. But that phrase right there, it's hard for you to kick against the goats, that is repeated in Paul's testimony in Acts 22. It's a great little point. What that verse is saying is this. It's basically, Paul, you're, you're kicking against the goats. And these goats, another way to translate this, are pricks or stings. What God was doing was poking Paul, stinging Paul, pricking Paul to get his attention. That's what he was doing. And what Paul was doing, he was kicking against it. Every time he got poked by the Lord, he would kick back against. Makes it hurt worse. We fail this way sometimes. All of you came in here today, and you probably have an unsafe friend or loved one. What the Lord wants to do to get this person's attention is to sting them, is to poke them, to prick them. Allow your unsaved loved ones to get stung by God. That's a hard thing to do. Because the way we want our unsaved loved ones to get saved is this. Lord, make their life such a blessing that every good thing they see, they know it has to be from God. And they'll be overwhelmed with the goodness of God. That may work. What I've seen in my years as a pastor is usually the opposite. They're completely, utterly broken. And they have no place to turn but Jesus. Let them be stung. Let them be pricked. Let them be poked. Allow your unsaved loved ones to get stung by the Lord. That's a difficult thing to do. But I would rather see my unsaved loved ones suffer for a span in this life 
but then have all of eternity with Jesus Christ. Rather than, Lord, give them the most blessed life possible, and then they still die and go to hell. So God, in His infinite wisdom, was stinging, pricking, poking Paul to get his attention. That's love. So God then tells them, go to the city, you'll be told what to do. Verses 7, 8, 9, the people with them hear this voice, and they don't really understand it. And, and Paul now is blinded. He's blinded by the light. What's going to happen? Verse 10. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. We'll stop right there for real quick. There are at least three Ananiases in the Bible. One is the high priest Ananias. There's another one that was Ananias of Acts 5. That, If you remember correctly, him and his wife were judged. This is a separate Ananias. Ananias. And he said to, and, excuse me, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias. Ananias pops on the scene. Short little interlude with Ananias. Not mentioned again. But Ananias got to disciple Paul. Now think about that for a second. Somebody led Billy Graham to the Lord. Somebody led all these big names to look. Somebody was involved in their life. Ananias had the privilege and opportunity to disciple Paul. How amazing is that? Now, what's Ananias' response to this? Verses 13 and 14 can be summed up very quickly. Are you sure? This is Saul. Look at verse 13 one more time. Lord... I've heard from many about this man and how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Are you sure about this? This is Saul. Rounds up Christians. Kills them. He oversaw Stephen's death. Wreaking havoc in the church. You are sure about this, Lord. You're sure about this. See, isn't this part of the problem with discipleship? God's called us to be disciples. God has called us to disciple other people. God has called us to go make disciples. And and I'm not trying to pick because I do the same thing. We do everything we can to try to get out of it. See, that's the thing. God God has called us to get involved in people's lives. God had called Ananias here specifically to be involved in Paul's life. It's such an instrumental time in his relationship with Christ. And God has called you to do the same thing. But we try so hard to get out of it. Can you go to the book of Titus with me, please? Titus. Titus is right after the Timothys, First and Second Timothy. And it's a short little book of Titus. I love Titus. Titus is arguably my favorite book in the New Testament. It's only three short chapters, but it's a book that's written to this idea of a pastor. This is how the church is supposed to work. If you look here, 
Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. There are things lacking in the church. So Paul writes to Titus, hey, it's your responsibility as the spiritual leader of this group to set in order the things that are lacking. So he goes through and he gives them these commands, verses 5 through 16, to set up elders, the spiritual authorities in the church. That's what we're supposed to do. Now the problem is we usually stop right there. I know not everybody thinks this, but this is the 21st century church design. There's just this group of leaders, spiritual leaders, the staff, whatever you want to call them. They take care of the church. I show up for services. I assume that they're just going to take care of everything. Show up, hopefully be blessed, go back home. Show up, hopefully be blessed, go back home. That's not the way the book of Acts is. The book of Acts are men and women getting involved in the church's life, discipling people, making disciples, encouraging one another, growing the church spiritually. Because if you just stop after chapter 1, you can make that case. But look at Titus 2. But as for you, verse 1, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. It is my responsibility as the pastor to speak sound doctrine. So what is sound doctrine? Verse 2, that the older men be sober, Reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and patience. The older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. They admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, and doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and corruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Find who you are in that passage, and then do it. What is he saying? He's saying, older men in the church... You've walked with the Lord for a while. You have a solid walk with the Lord. It's not that you have it all figured out. Go find a younger guy in the Lord and disciple them. Older women in the church, go find that new mom, that new wife, that new marriage. And and you've been through the ups and downs of kids and marriage. You know what it's like. Take them under your wing. Just set them up. Go introduce yourself to them. Go do that. Younger men, you're new in the Lord. Look around, find that guy that you say, wow, what an example of Christ he is. Go introduce yourself and say, hey, do you mind if maybe just once or twice a week we we could just contact each other? I could share what I'm going through and the the Lord, you could share what you're going through and you could impart that wisdom to me. Or maybe younger moms, younger wives, you go and do that as well. Go find that woman. You say, wow, look how she raised her family and kids in that marriage. That's the way the system is supposed to work. The problem is, the 21st century concept, we don't do that. The church doesn't take care of the church. I heard a great quote which says, We never finish the discipleship process. You are never done discipling someone, and you are never done growing as a disciple. We mentioned last week, the system, I would hope, is this. That you always have somebody in your life that you are discipling and growing in the Lord, and I hope that you always have somebody in your life that you can contact to say, help me grow. Now, the problem is we hear phrases like that. I don't even know what it means to disciple someone. I don't know what it means to be discipled. It means that you're willing to invest in their life, and they're willing to invest in your life. It means that you're willing to stop and say, hey, this is what I read this week. How, How can I pray for you? What struggles are you having? That's what it means. This is what the church is supposed to be doing. Go Make disciples. 
It's not the responsibility of just chapter 1, the elders. It's the responsibility of the church. Problem is, we spend most of our life coming up with as many excuses as we can to not do it. I don't know the Bible well enough. I really don't have a lot of time. I don't even know what I would say. I'm kind of a shy person. I struggle with meeting new people. I love you all to death. When you're done making excuses, let's get down to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is this is what God has called us to do. See, there's a fascinating chapter at the beginning of the book of Exodus. When God calls Moses to go lead the Jews out of Egypt. And for a whole chapter, God allows Moses to make excuses. I really can't lead. I'm really not good at at speaking in front of other people. And and every time Moses makes an excuse, God just checks it off. Hey, nope, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Finally, at the end of the chapter, the truth comes out and Moses says, I don't want to do it. And when he says, I don't want to do it, God's loving response, he gets angry. Because God is basically saying in anger, you don't trust me to be the power to have you do this. If the Lord has called you to disciple someone, to get in their lives, he will give you the strength, the wisdom, the knowledge. He will do it for you. You all here, including myself, we're all completely unqualified to do anything. It's the Holy Spirit working through us that we can ever accomplish anything. One of the jokes that we have out here at church is God bless us harvest in spite of us. We try to do everything we can to screw this up, and the Lord just keeps blessing it. The church has been designed to take care of the church. Ananias was a man that God raised up for a brief moment in time to bless Paul. Does your marriage need blessed? Find somebody who has a good marriage, or you think have a good marriage. Ask them to be involved. Is your walk with Christ stale? Find somebody you see on fire for the Lord and say, Hey, do you mind if we would contact each other throughout the week? Are you finding yourself, maybe like I said, once again, you've been through the ups and downs of life or marriage. Maybe see a new couple and introduce yourself. Get involved in their lives. That's discipleship. That's disciple-making. This is exactly what we see here with Ananias. Paul's new. I'm bringing him to you, Ananias. Spend some time with him. And that's exactly what Ananias has done. After Ananias says, are you sure? Look at verses 15 and 16. Look at that phrase in verse 15. Paul is a chosen vessel. The next time you're feeling down, discouraged, depressed, God chose you to know salvation. Isn't that amazing? The Bible says in John 15 that Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. Jesus says, I wanted you. We we have a tendency to convince ourselves that we are completely unwanted and unloved by anybody. And Jesus taps us on the shoulder and says, I chose you, I wanted you. I remember after I got saved, I've been saved for about a year or so, and there was a young couple coming out to church, and we just got together. And they were newly married, and I was kind of new in the Lord, they were new in the Lord, and we did just get together and do Bible studies. And I remember distinctly one time sitting on their couch in their apartment living room, and we were going through this passage, and the subject came up of being chosen. And I remember her just breaking down in tears saying, God chose me. That just really impacted her. I was wanted by somebody. God chose you. God wanted Paul. God wants you. Look at verse 16, though. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I think sometimes as Christians we do a disservice to the truth of the gospel. 
The truth of the gospel is Jesus Christ loved you. He died on the cross for your sins. There's only one way to get to heaven through Jesus. You can't earn it. You can't do it on your own. We're all sinners. That's the truth of the gospel. But what happens is we have a tendency to do this. Get saved. And oh my goodness, watch how your life just comes together. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's blessed. And that is all true. But... Verse 16, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. Jesus made it clear in John 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. When you do claim to be a Christian and you make that confession of faith, it's a tough world out there. It really is. And I think sometimes we have a tendency as Christians to not give that full sight of it. I'm telling you right now. To walk in this fallen world as a believer is a tough thing to do. It is tough to raise pure kids in an impure world. It is tough to be a pure man in an impure world. It's tough to have a godly marriage where marriage is no longer accepted or wanted in any way whatsoever. It is tough to do. There are tribulations in this world. We know this. We understand this. And God prepares us for that. He has never hidden that fact. It seems like as Christians, we hide that fact. There are difficulties, but the Lord is the one that sees us through it. Verse 17, Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, I just want to stop there for a second. Brother Saul. Ananias was obviously Baptist. Brother Saul. I'm not picking, because Baptists don't have a sense of humor, but I'm not picking on the Baptist. Brother Saul, family. Okay, I, I, I feel like I'm belittling this point, and maybe I am, and forgive me for that. This is the guy that was just killing people a couple chapters ago. This is the guy that at the earlier part of this chapter had letters. Just a couple days ago, he was going to go round up more Christians. And now he's part of the kingdom. That's grace. That's mercy. Can, can you imagine how that felt? Here's Paul blind. Still trying to digest what happened on this road. And Ananias comes in, places his hand on him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. And so then he had received food and was strengthened and Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Paul hangs out with the church. I'm looking forward to next week. Because next week we're going to get into the early life of of Saul here. And it's a neat picture of what is supposed to happen after we get saved. And and I was already taking notes on it. I got like seven things written down. These are the steps that happen after you're walking with the Lord. That's a pretty neat picture there. But look at this last phrase. Verse 19. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Here's that word again, disciple. What an interesting word. It's a noun and a verb at the same time. You are a disciple, a follower of a teacher, and your teacher you choose to follow is Jesus Christ. But yet you're also called to go disciple. That means to teach other people to follow your teacher, which is Jesus Christ. Can you go with me to Matthew 28, please? This is what I want to finish with. Matthew 28.
Jesus' words that he gave us <clears throat> make it clear what we're supposed to be doing. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. We're called to make disciples. We can't do it through our own power and ability. It's through the Spirit leading. We know that. I don't mean just to step on toes. Please don't take it that way. Let's just break this verse down. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. When's the last time you made a disciple for Jesus Christ? When's the last time you discipled somebody? Verse 19. Baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When's the last time you baptized somebody? Now some of you may be thinking, well, come on James. Everybody knows only the pastor baptizes people. I haven't found that yet in the Bible. You know what would give me great joy? And, and we're planning another baptism service here coming up, and we're going to talk about baptism next week. Somewhere. You know what would give me a great joy? If somebody would come up to me and say, Hey, James, I want to introduce you to my friend here. I, I had the privilege of leading them to Christ the Lord. And I've had the privilege over these last few months of really discipling them and growing them. I heard you're doing a baptism service coming up. Would you care if I'd baptize them? Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine that moment of you've seen this person born again, you've seen this person grow in their relationship with Christ, and then you have the privilege and honor of baptizing them. Let's do it. Let's go make disciples. Let's baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, let's teach them to observe all things. Let's do that. Let's disciple Let's baptize. Let's teach. Let's let the Spirit lead. Let's do this. This is what the church is supposed to be. And the format of the 21st century church does not work. Now, it works on paper. It sure looks good because it sure seems like to me, anytime I talk to other pastors or churches, it really just becomes this competition. Who's the biggest church? Who has the most services? How many people are on your staff? No, let's just make disciples. Let's make disciples. Let's teach disciples. Let's baptize disciples. Let's see disciples filled with the Holy Spirit. Because then those disciples will go make other disciples. And this is how the system works. And this is what we need to do. Don and I have felt this way, and, and we felt convicted by this, that there are things that we need to change in our life. Because we started thinking, are, are we doing this? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm talking to people all the time about the Lord. But are we really doing this? You know, before I, I took over out here at church, Don and I always had the, the pleasure of teaching back in the preschool room together. You know, something that we could do together. We were one flesh, husband and wife, back there serving the Lord. You know, I took over out here, and we haven't been able to serve together as much as we can. You know, our oldest is going to turn nine. And so for about the last ten years, Don's been in mom mode, and we haven't had that opportunity to serve. So we've been praying about it, and this is something we're going to start doing, be it in April or be it in May. We don't know for sure whenever the schedule works out. I'm going to take one Wednesday a month, and Don and I are going to go back, and we're going to teach back in the preschool room together. We're going to go back and make disciples. We're going to serve together as one flesh. I think it's a good example that needs to be set of husbands and wives serving together, ministering together. And for that one Wednesday a month, somebody else will get a chance to come up here and be blessed. They'll be blessed in getting a chance to teach, and you'll be blessed in getting a chance to hear them teach. We mentioned last Sunday, we are not going to ever be possessive of anything. This is not my pulpit. This is the Lord's. Let somebody come out 
and be blessed and let them come up and bless you. And Dawn and I then get the blessing of going back and serving together and blessing and teaching the preschoolers. I don't really know if teaching preschoolers is a blessing. I'll find out. It's been a while. But we'll go back and we'll do that. Because we really want to stop and say, are we doing this? Are we giving other people an opportunity to teach and be blessed and bless others? Are we getting an opportunity as a husband and wife to serve and minister together? We want to really live this out. We want to make disciples. How else are we going to do it unless we do it? Let's look at what the book of Acts says. Let's look at what Titus says. Let's look at what Matthew says in First and Second Timothy. And let's just do this. If that's what they did, how about we do it? Let's just follow the pattern that God laid out through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And let's be that church. We will always give you an opportunity on Sundays and Wednesdays to worship, to serve, for prayer, for teaching, for fellowship. We believe those are all important. We'll give you opportunities throughout the week for small group studies to be encouraged, to be blessed. We will be there to help and and pray for whatever we can. But the most important thing we can do, according to Ephesians, is to equip the saints to go out and be disciple makers. And that's what we need to start doing as a church and all that we say and all that we do. Marv, if you can come forward here for the final song. Lots of things going on. Movies coming up Saturday. The stone raking party Saturday morning.